I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. In this week's show, we take a look at Europe's energy markets and the impact of oil and gas prices on electricity bills. And we'll be reviewing BHB Billiton's prospects in the aftermath of its failure to take over the Canadian Potash Corporation. The Canadian government blocked the attempt by BHP Billiton to buy Potash Corporation on the grounds that it was not beneficial for, for the country. And we'll end the show with a look at the prospect for investment into renewables in the wake of the G20 meeting. It was rather uh, the lion that squeaked, so to speak. They reaffirmed their desire to phase out fossil fuels which is kind of like reaffirming their desire to stop overspending. Um. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, David Blair. Javier Blas will be joining us later to talk about potash. But first, let's hear from the FT's energy editor, Sylvia Pfeiffer, on Europe's energy markets. Earlier this week, she spoke to Colette Lewiner, head of the Energy and Utilities Division of Capgemini, about new analysis the consultancy has published today on Europe's energy markets and the impact of oil and gas prices on electricity bills. Sylvia started off by asking Colette to sum up the key findings of the analysis. Last year we were in a crisis year and uh, we are seeing that beginning of 2010 we are getting out slowly, but we are getting out of the crisis. You can see it on the electricity and gas consumption. Both went down uh, last year by around 4% for electricity and 6% for gas. And early 2010, electricity increased 3% and gas 10%. Of course, it was a very cold winter, so half of that is due to temperature. We are also seeing that the prices are up again. They were down last year and they're up again with a special uh, case around gas because the gas market has changed quite a lot uh, during the last years because of the discovery of non-conventional gas in the U.S., which is changing the whole market because, of course, you have a global gas market through LNG, so liquefied natural gas. So gas prices were quite down in the U.S., in U.K., Less so in, in, in Europe, because in Europe they are linked to the oil prices, and oil prices went up again in 2010. Huh? Why, apart from having had a cold winter, are, are sort of prices um, sort of on the up again? Last year, the electricity and gas consumption decreased mainly because of the industrial sector which is roughly one-third of the total consumption. You remember last year, some factories were closed or working at low capacity because of the crisis. And we are seeing this year that the factories are again working at larger capacity. I'm not saying full capacity, but larger capacity. And the stockpiles were very low at the end of uh, last year. So the industry is up again, and I think this is the main reason why we are seeing electricity and gas consumption up again. You're talking about factories like what car company, car factories in, in Europe, um, so steel factories, um, sort of big industrial factories. It's big industrial factories. With one fact is that we are seeing localization of, of those factories outside Europe, mainly in Asia. 
And this is a permanent effect. Factories that have gone out of the industrial countries in, in Europe to go to Asia, I think the production is not going to come back in Europe, which means that the energy consumption linked to those factories is lost, if you wish. So I I believe that we are seeing an energy consumption going up again, but we are not going to reach before a few years the levels of 2007. Just to talk a little bit more about gas, I mean, you, you mentioned the discovery of, of shale gas in the U.S., uh, which has obviously led to a lot of gas in the U.S. and the gas no longer needing to import a, lo- a lot of LNG. Yes, so there has been big exploitation of non-conventional gas in the U.S., mainly shale gas. This has had a global effect because the U.S. has not imported LNG as predicted. Also, the crisis has put uh, pressure on LNG. And on the other side, the liquefaction factories in producing countries like Qatar or Yemen have been put online. So there is a sort of bubble of uh, LNG. And a sort of gas bubble. It will not last for for all times, but but it is there today. It has impacted the prices in the U.S. that were quite low, has gone up a little bit. It has impacted the the prices in the U.S. that have been quite low at four four dollars per million BTU and a little bit up now. It has impacted the prices on the U.K. exchange. It has less impacted the gas prices in Europe because a lot of long-term contracts are linked to the oil price. This is what Gazprom, which is the main exporter to Europe, is is uh, wanting from its clients. Now, on the mid-term, everybody believes and we believe that this link between oil prices and gas prices, which made sense in the past because you you would discover gas at the same time as oil, but it's no longer true with the unconventional gases, this link will be uh, less important. So if you're a big buyer of of gas from from somebody like Gazprom, what are you going to try and do? It, It happened and it's happening. Two things. Those are take-or-pay contracts, so if you don't take it, you pay. Huh? So this has been renegotiated, and gas from during last winter, where there was this excess of gas, has accepted to give some relief to its customers on this side. And it has also accepted to introduce uh, spot prices as price reference for around 15% of the total price. So a small part of spot spot prices Will this become larger in the future? It's a question. Gazprom is not in favor of that because they say that the continental exchanges of gas are not liquid enough and that the buyers could play with that and have prices decrease. Nevertheless, if you look at all commodity markets, take the metals, even uranium, those have long-term contracts which are indexed on spot prices. So I think it will evolve towards more spot price links. That was Sylvia Pfeiffer talking to Colette Lewiner from Capgemini earlier this week. I'm joined now by Javier Blas, the FT's commodity editor, to talk about BHP Billiton in the week that it formally ended its three-month attempt to take over the Canadian Potash Corporation. Thanks for joining us, Javier. Perhaps we could start with a bit of background on the story. Why exactly did this bid fail? It was all, at the end of the day, due to politics. The Canadian government blocked the attempt by BHP Billiton to buy uh, Potash Corporation on the grounds that it was not 
beneficial for, for the country. It was a very painful decision for Ottawa, but the government was facing a, a very difficult situation uh, on the political ground. There were internal polls on the party uh, suggesting that they will lose a lot of uh, popular support in, in the province where Potash Corporation is, is located. So the government, for the second time in recent history, decided to block this bid. Obviously, from the beginning, this was an, a hostile approach by BHP Billiton, and that made the, the, the situation much more difficult. And some bankers believe that in a, in a different situation, half uh, BHP Billiton and Potash agreed on a price has been a, a friendly merger or a friendly takeover, then the political problems will have been resolved. But since the whole deal was from a hostile point of view, the politics became the main problem at the end of the day. Does BHP Billiton have any options now, or is this definitively the end of the story for them? I think that is the end of the story for the time being. I was speaking with a very senior executive of BHP Billiton, and he was telling me that now the company needs to be very patient. So I think that they continue to be interested in potash, potash as a community, but also potash as a company, and that they may try something in, in the future, but obviously we will need to wait until new elections happen in, in Canada before they could attempt again a takeover for this company. They may decide to go for other targets in potash, but I think that for the next at least year, the door of Potash Corporation is firmly closed. The CEO of BHP Billiton had staked an awful lot on his quest to take over the Potash Corporation. Where does this leave him? Well, it leaves him in a, in a difficult situation because it's the third failure for Marius Koppler. And it has cost a lot of money. These three failures have cost BHP Billiton shareholders around $900 million in bank fees and also in, in credit facilities that they have to put together just to, to go ahead with the, with the deals. So in, in a way, it, it is a problem for Marius Koppler because he has been unable to, to close the, the deal and he has been spending quite a lot of money from the shareholders. On the other hand, some investors see as a, as a sign of a mature CEO who is ready to walk away of a deal when the economics of the deal are not working. He, he said he was not going to increase. If he has increased the money on the table, he may have resolved the political problem getting a friendly approach with, with Potash. However, he said, I'm not going to put more money on the table. This is our offer. Uh, you take it or you leave it. And some investors are happy that at least it is not about ego of completing the operation. But obviously, uh, for Marius Koppler, it's a major setback. On this one, however, he's a bit chilled because Jack Nasser, the chairman of the company, was heavily involved on the BHP Billiton Potash deal attempt. So in a way that shield of the chairman of the company is protecting him. The board is very unlikely to go after uh, Marius Koppler, taking in account that who was doing a lot of the work on the deal was the, precisely the chairman of the board. So is the smart money on Marius Koppler's survival as CEO? Yes, I think that Marius Koppler is surviving. And however, he has three setbacks trying to do deals. He has a, a, a very good track record so far. The company is extremely profitable. Uh, obviously, that's on the back of high commodity prices, particularly iron ore, thermal coal, cooking coal and copper. But also he has done some remarkable work in the industry to change around things. Particularly, he is the key executive behind the chains in how iron ore prices are settled every year. It was previously uh, annual negotiations, very difficult annual negotiations. Today is a free market and prices because of that reason are much higher. So are the revenues and the, and the profitability for the company. So I think that this is a setback, but this is not the end of Marius Koppler's. Thanks very much, Javier. And to our final topic for today, the investment potential of renewables in the wake of the G20 summit meeting. 
Michael Lynch, President of Strategic Energy and Economic Research, a consultancy based in Massachusetts that focuses on global markets, in particular oil and gas markets, spoke to Sylvia Pfeiffer about the prospect for investment and where the US is going on its commitment to addressing climate change. Sylvia starts off by asking Michael about what conclusions he was able to draw from the G20 meeting. Well, it, it was rather uh, the lion that squeaked, so to speak. Um, you know, they, they reaffirmed their desire to uh, phase out fossil fuels, um, which is kind of like reaffirming their desire to stop overspending. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think there's any really solid, concrete uh, uh, policies that will come out of this. Is that, is that, do you think, mainly because in the U.S. President Obama's obviously suffered quite a defeat um, in the midterm election, so he hasn't got the sort of political uh, momentum behind him in the U.S. to do anything? I, I think that's a big part of it. It's also that uh, you had a lot of emphasis on cutting budget deficits. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, if you want to phase out fossil fuels, the main thing that people are doing now is spending money on renewable subsidies. And uh, that's going to be a lot harder uh, in, in, in the next couple of years, at least, as governments from Spain to uh, Ireland try to cut their deficits. To go back to the US, um, there's very sort of various tax credits, I think, on renewable energies, which are due to be phased out or at least uh, renewed at the end of the year. And I just wondered what you thought the prospect might be for them being renewed, given, given the current climate. Uh, I think there will be a lot of opposition, uh, depending on the specific tax credit. Uh, ethanol, unfortunately, uh, is always popular with politicians. Uh, subsidizing farmers is something that they excel at in this country and others. Uh, but I think there'll be more uh, resistance to, for example, solar and wind subsidies, uh, which are which are getting larger as, as those industries expand, at least in dollar amounts. Uh, so there's a distinct possibility that you'll see them cut, but I doubt if they'll be eliminated. In terms of investment, I mean, most sort of people seem to say that, that investment into renewables will keep on expanding and demand for renewables will keep on increasing. But what's what's your um, view as, as, as to how soon we might we might be getting more of our energy from renewables? Well, you know, renewables have been growing, but from a very small base. And I think the problem is that, uh, especially for photovoltaic, solar electricity, uh, the cost is still way too high. Um, and you, you really don't get very far without massive subsidies. So I, I think we're going to see a pullback. And this will be kind of like 30 years ago when everybody was all opt- very optimistic about uh, solar and wind. And, and then uh, when oil prices came down, we saw a real bust in, in that sector. And I, I think we're headed for that again. Given the BP accident in the Gulf of Mexico, what, what's your view on investment into, into the oil and gas industry in the U.S.? Um, I think we'll see a pickup uh, now that we have the new regulations in place. There'll be some delay uh, because there's only so many inspectors and, and that's a bottleneck for uh, approval of these big projects. But I, I think we'll see essentially going further out uh, that we'll be fairly close to where we were before the accident in the, in the next three to five years. And what's happened on the tax situation on this in the U.S.? There are a number of tax breaks that the industry gets, most of which are, are similar to what uh, other industries get. But the, uh, the dual capacity uh, tax, as it's called, allows them uh, a tax break on their overseas taxes, essentially. And the concern there is is that uh, the industry already faces a lot of competition from national oil companies uh, around the world and who get all kinds of direct and indirect support, and that removing this would mean a fairly small revenue bump for the U.S. government, but it would mean uh, that the industry would find itself on a, an even more uneven playing field, I guess you would say. So not good news for the likes of Exxon and Chevron and, and ConocoPhillips? People tend to think of, of the industry as heavily subsidized. The subsidies are, are not that large. 
Um, most of the, the subsidies globally for fossil fuels come from countries where they subsidize uh, the consumption, not the production of energy. People have estimated that if, if Obama got all of his desired reduction in, in uh, tax breaks for the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry, it would only matter to a few billion dollars a year. Just one last question. We're obviously heading towards the Cancun climate talks at the end of the month. I just wondered, given what happened at the G20, what, 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 how optimistic you are of some, something being agreed? Well, I was looking at the G20 agreement, the, the actual phrasing, and uh, I, I think what you'll, you'll get out of Cancun is agreement that, you know, the, the, uh, we, we should be concerned about the climate, we should reduce emissions, uh, but without hurting poor, poor countries, and, and we all want to thank Mexico for their uh, hosting our meeting. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not optimistic that anything concrete will come out of that, frankly. That was Michael Lynch talking to Sylvia Pfeiffer earlier this week. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Javier in the studio and our guests Colette Luina and Michael Lynch. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm David Blair. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.